American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given to New York City teachers as part of a professional development seminar. Uh, I'm really delighted to be here. This, this kind of um, talk and this kind of group is, is it's one of my favorite things to do. It's one of my, it's, I think, in, in some sense, the most important kind of work that I do. And I'm, I'm eager not just to talk at you, but to talk with you and to hear your questions and to, to discuss uh, you know, how to handle some of these materials in the classroom and also some of the teaching challenges that you all are faced with. Um, I heard the most wonderful remark is two older women, uh, very kind of elegant, stately looking women are walking down the street arm in arm and one says to the other, shall we walk or do we have time to take a cab? <laughs> and that's kind, of, that's, that's kind of how I feel with this talk. I'm gonna take a leisurely stroll through some of the dimensions of the Ellis Island era of immigration, but I know that you all have places you need to go. You have particular questions facing you in the classroom, you have particular requirements, particular challenges, so I want to balance your interests against my own kind of leisurely interest as well. So uh, I'm going to try to do both things if I can. Um, I want to talk about the general contours of this period in immigration, and I, I'm taking a little bit of liberty with the, the term the Ellis Island era. Ellis Island, as you know, doesn't open until the 1890s, and I'm really talking about a bit more of an expanded frame. I'm talking about the period of the massive European immigration, especially, say, roughly the Civil War to World War I, a period uh, from the mid-1860s or 1870 to the 1920 or so, a period in which 26 million people enter the United States. Uh, and I mean, I'm even going to refer back a little bit beyond uh, a couple references to an earlier period, the beginning of the Irish immigration going back to the 1840s. But in a general way, I'll be talking about the, the latter part of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th. And I want to talk about the kind of general contours of that migration. I want to talk about uh, the ways in which, and, and this will fit well with what you've already done this morning, the ways in which the, uh, the immigrants of this era were welcomed or not. Uh, and also some of their responses and, and actual strategies for surviving and thriving in a setting that was, in, in some senses, rather hostile. Okay, so first of all, just the contours of the immigration itself. This is a story, if you think of the demographics of it, and I don't want to hit you with a million numbers, uh, you can look those up yourself, but just to get a sense of it, uh, within that 26 million that I discussed, if you broke it out country by country, what you would see is a series of statistical bell curves. So from any given country, say Ireland, uh, migration starts to rise, the numbers will peak, then they will fall off. Uh, and so you have, country by country, you have that kind of statistical story. And in a general way, those bell curves start with the west of Europe. They start in Ireland, especially, uh, Germany, Scandinavia, uh, Western and Northern Europe earlier, the 18, you know, 40s for the Irish, 1870s. Uh, and then you move east and south in Europe. And so by the end of the century, your statistical bell curves uh, for the Italians, say, are beginning to rise in the 1880s and are peaking uh, just after the turn of the century and then beginning to fall. Same thing with Russian Jews. So you have this, this series of statistical bell curves that are telling uh, 
In some sense, they're telling the same story again and again, different story for different regions or, or different countries, uh, but they're also telling a kind of general geographic story of, of social change sweeping across Europe uh, from the west to the east. So just to give you some sense, the Irish, uh, as you know, and some of, the, some of the, these statistical bell curves will have a slightly different shape. Um, the Irish bell curve will, will, will be steeper because it's a response to a crisis, in this case, the famine. So it spikes, it doesn't gently roll the way the German bell curve does. It spikes in the 1840s and then kind of and levels off over a long period of time. Uh, so for example, for the period, uh, oh, by the way, and I'm, and I'm using here not entry statistics, um, these are not the, the data on immigrants coming in. These are census data based on the number of foreign-born. Uh, because the data on actual entries, the way that was measured changes from one period to another. So if you want stable statistics across time, the census data is, is easier uh, to track. But in any case, in uh, the, the census of, of 1850, there are just under a million Irish uh, in the United States, and uh, by 1890, that's, uh, it's gone up to 1.8 million, okay? By contrast, immigrants from the Scandinavian countries combined, there were only 18,000 in 1850, okay? So Irish immigration has already spiked. There are very few <coughs> Scandinavian immigrants in the United States in the 1850s, but uh, by, the, by 1910, there's 1.3 million, and it's a much gentler curve. Now, some of these, as I said, are responses to local conditions. So you have the Irish famine, which is also a political crisis. It's not just an agricultural crisis, but it's, it's a kind of um, agricultural crisis that's brought on by a particular set of political relationships. Nonetheless, it's a crisis that spurs massive migrations. Uh, similarly, from China, you might remember, uh, or maybe you discussed it uh, in your, one of your previous sessions when you're talking about Asian immigration. Uh, there were political changes in China in this period, uh, changes in taxation that put a heightened premium on the possession of gold. It became very important for a certain stratum of Chinese society to have access to gold and have gold and be able to pay for things in gold. And this happened at the same moment that gold was discovered in California, at the same moment when uh, steam travel made it possible to make the trip to California. And so there again, there's a local condition that, that uh, promotes or spurs a particular migration. Uh, similarly, there's, uh, you might see a, an earthquake or something of that sort in a place like Italy or Armenia that, uh, that creates a crisis, dislocates people, and uh, spurs migration. So you do get those kinds of spikes within the statistical story. But what this is much more about is a sweeping set of transformations socially and economically across the globe. Economic trends that are sweeping more and more people into a rising wage economy, into a rising industrial economy, and that these changes, changes in cities like Chicago and New York, Warsaw, some old world cities, that the, the changes are not just changes for the city folk, but that they're, they're reaching out into the countryside and changing 
and changing conditions there. So the simple story is, why do 26 million people come to the United States, mostly settling in the urban areas like Milwaukee, Chicago, New York, Boston? The simple answer is there were jobs there and they needed them. The more complex question to ask is why would anyone need a job? If you live in a village where you're doing subsistence farming, where you don't really engage in a, in a cash economy at all, it's all barter, you raise your crops, you trade for things, you make your own clothes. You've been living that way for centuries. Why do you need a job? What's the lure of a place like Chicago for you? What do you need money for? Well, what's happening, and this is happening across the globe, is that even in that remote village, even in the hinterland, one or two or three or ultimately a handful of very important figures on the local scene get tapped into that distant industrial economy. Merchants, bankers especially, people involved in transport, when the railroad uh, comes through um, your village, suddenly all of those old relationships change. Suddenly, if you want seed to plant, you have to pay in cash or you have to, uh, you have to pay that debt on time because that merchant that you're dealing with for the first time in generations, the first time ever, that merchant is now beholden to people in Chicago or New York or Cincinnati to pay his debts. And so these, these uh, changes wrought by industrialization and urbanization, it's not just the change for the city itself, but it's, it's disrupting much older uh, patterns of indebtedness and, and habits and customs around farming, around planting, around paying debts, uh, and all of these things in a way that is, is not just encouraging immigration. It's not just that now you need a job and you can get one in, in Chicago, and you know it, and it's, it's easier to transport yourself to Chicago now because there's a railroad, but um, you're getting thrown off the land, likely, in some way or another. Farmers, whether we're talking about rural Poland or Ireland, or the American South, farmers now are raising uh, cash crops, they're raising staple crops for market. Old subsistence plots are being consolidated, smaller farmers and tenants are getting thrown off the land so that uh, farmers can, can grow you know, a single crop like wheat, for example, and ship it. Uh, and it's those people, the people who are displaced by these, by these uh, economic forces are, are the ones who then become these massive streams of migrants. And so this is a period of short-term and short-range migrations from rural Poland to Warsaw, from rural Ohio to Cincinnati, by the millions, but it's also a period of these much longer-range migrations as well, from Italy to the United States, from China to the United States. Uh, now, there are a couple important things about this. When we think about immigration as, a, as a, an object of study, we kind of have in our heads this image of the, the typical immigrant. Someone was talking about um, peasants, and so many of them were. It's kind of small peasantry. We have this image of people kind of being swept along, kind of pre-modern villagers, right? Being swept along by forces that are beyond their comprehension, even. There's a kind of, uh, a kind of quaint, icon of the, the immigrant of this era 
as someone who's kind of entering the modern world and is bewildered by it. Well, maybe in a certain sense, yes, the city was dazzling compared to the village. Some people were seeing electricity for the very first time. On the other hand, migration itself, if you look at it in this context, migration itself was a capitalist strategy. These people had already encountered the industrial world in their villages and adapted to it, and migration was their adaptation. So these are very savvy people already in some, in some sense, savvy about the changes that are, that are overtaking the world, savvy about how to respond to them. That's the kind of economic context. And the labor historian David Montgomery has this great image for thinking about this period, thinking about the 26 million migrants who come to the United States. He said you could take a globe and a magic marker and you could draw a circle, start in San Francisco and draw a circle, kind of arc upward to the north and then start to the east and take in Toronto and then go across the ocean to north, through northern uh, taking in northern Europe, maybe start to circle down. So you just take in, maybe just to the east of Warsaw, maybe going as far as Moscow, and then starting to circle back to the south and back towards the west, take in back, you know, the rest of Western Europe, and now come back across the ocean to somewhere like Louisville, Kentucky, kind of cutting uh, North America in half, uh, uh, you know, taking in some of the south, but not much of it. So there's your circle. He said, in this period, whether you're thinking about migrations, you're thinking about economics, you're thinking about uh, the structures of power globally, what you're seeing is the relationship of the rest of the world to this circle. It's the industrial and economic development. What's going on in this circle is really determining, in a major way, the lives of everyone else on the planet. And, that's, and what, migration is one reflection of that, the, the massive numbers of people moving from outside of that circle to inside of it, and the, the kind of feverish migrations going on within that circle. That's part of it, uh, but you can see other ways as well that that, uh, that kind of locus of industrialization and, and economic development is, is kind of the big game in town uh, for people whether they live in South America, Central America, Asia, uh, or the hinterland in, uh, in different parts of Europe. Okay, that's the economic backdrop and part of what migrants are responding to in this migration. How are they greeted? And you've begun to talk about that uh, in some detail this morning. Now, as I said, Ellis Island, was established in the 1890s. It's, as Leo was saying, this is, this is the moment when immigration policy is federalized for the first time. It's been really, up to this point, kind of a hodgepodge patchwork of local and state arrangements with very little consistency. It's at this moment that the federal government steps in. Uh, and oh, and by the way, you know, there, there had been uh, very important other ports of entry, not just Castle Garden before Ellis Island here in, in New York, uh, but Boston, Baltimore, even Galveston, Texas were really important points of entry. At this moment when the federal government takes charge, oh, and Angel Island, which I think you discussed in your last, in your last uh, session. When the federal government federalizes not only law and policy, but the process, the administrative processes of migration, Ellis Island becomes the site, not the only one, but it's the site that, that statistically anyway will dwarf all others. And we have a set of myths that we kind of cherish 
about Ellis Island. We like we liked the story of welcoming the immigrants. We like the story of immigrants choosing the United States. We like the story of the pluck of the immigrant. And we like to think that we, we treated them well. We forget that one of the main things that Ellis Island was for was not just welcoming immigrants, but regulating this flow, detaining immigrants, deporting immigrants, and as some of the, the people who experienced it, kind of terrorizing the immigrants in a certain way. Ellis Island, now part of the mythology has to do not with the facts of the case, not with what Ellis Island was during its heyday, but the function as a symbol that it serves for us in the late 20th century and, or in, and early 21st. Ellis Island had been kind of uh, abandoned. As you know, it closed down in the 1920s. It had been abandoned, largely forgotten. It was grown over with brambles and, and infested with wharf rats. And uh, in 1965, when Lyndon Johnson wanted to uh, liberalize immigration policy for the first time in a few decades. And you have a timeline, I believe, that has some of the, the milestones. In 1965, Lyndon Johnson uh, liberalizes immigration policy, carrying out what had been one of Kennedy's dreams uh, before he was assassinated. And he, Johnson took that occasion to go to Ellis Island to sign the legislation and to make a big deal about it. And that moment, 1965, is the beginning of the story of the kind of rehabilitation of Ellis Island as a site. It was forgotten, abandoned, largely unknown until 1965. Then there's new energy around it, it's refurbished, there's a museum there, and it becomes one of the jewels in the crown of the National Park Service. There's only, I think, one national park that's visited more than Ellis Island. In fact, Ellis Island is now uh, the destination of more tourists per year than it ever was immigrants during the time that it was, that it was running. Okay, now what does this, what function, so this is kind of what we're up against when we think about Ellis Island, because we have, we've erected this enormous kind of mythology about it, and some warm, good feeling about it as well. Uh, in the piece by um, Nancy Foner that you read, you might begin to get a little bit of an idea of the, the kind of ideological function that Ellis Island is serving for us, not, not as a historical site that was doing important historical work a century ago, but as a symbol that's working very hard for us, one of the things that we're up against is there's this mythology of the old immigrants as the good immigrants, right? And that they're always compared and almost always uh, compared favorably to the new immigrants who are the bad immigrants. And that's, that's one of the kind of uh, motifs of the mythology around, around Ellis Island. That it's, it's a site of welcome, not harassment, that the story of Ellis Island is a story of, of grateful arrival and of these people who through their pluck and energy kind of came, were happy to be here, they shed their old world ways, they became Americans, they became us, right? But the story is a little bit more complicated as you've started to discuss yourselves in looking at the documents that you were looking at, those 19th century documents. Because at the time they weren't necessarily just welcomed so warmly. And you, when you look closely at what people were saying about the arrivals, whether it's the uh, Irish in the 1840s, Russian Jews in the 1890s, or Italians just after the turn of the century, when you see what native-born Americans were saying about the immigrants, it's really not so different from what you hear, the most kind of vitriolic things that you hear about today's immigrants. 
one of the ways to kind of think about the civic story, I mean, I've talked about the kind of economic background, the economic dimensions of the migration. Then there's this civic story. And these two things are at odds, and that's, it's one of the tensions that really structures the historic uh, trajectory of the politics of immigration, both in the period that we're talking about, the late 19th century, but also today. You could say that the imperatives of capitalism and the imperatives of American civic life, or at least the perceived imperatives of, of civic life, are at, are at odds. So the country needs immigrant labor. Whether we're talking about you know, the, the Slavic peasants who are going to come and be meat packers in Chicago and, and miners in Pennsylvania in the era of rapid industrialization, or whether we're talking about the, uh, the Caribbean migrants who are now doing childcare work in New York City, or the uh, South and Central American migrants who are really sustaining the hotel and restaurant industry in most of, this, in, in most of the country. There's a need for labor, a massive need for immigrant labor on the one hand, and capitalism and the imperatives of capitalism will invite in whoever can come to take up that work, and that's been the case for a century and a half. But on the other hand, there is this perceived delicacy of our civic life. I'm gonna go into this in more detail in a second, but there is this fear of the other, this anxiety about diversity itself. That's a kind of undercurrent Sometimes it becomes a prominent current, but it's a, it's, it's, it's a through line from the arrivals of the Irish uh, in the 1840s onward, this sense that maybe our civic life can't withstand all of this difference. Maybe our civic life can't withstand these huge influxes of people who are not like us. And these two things are at odds. And the, the tension between those two things really has structured the immigration debate and in some sense has structured immigration policy through this, this whole period. Okay, so one of the questions that we need to think about within this context of the kind of inexorable forces of economic reality that's going to bring people to our shores that did in the 19th century and will continue to do and given the kind of fears that we have about those, uh, those people themselves and about our, our own population. What is the history of the kind of American response? What is the history of notions of citizenship that will either accommodate or not accommodate the uh, massive influx of immigrants? And that will kind of mediate between the, the economic realities and capitalism's requirements on the one hand and the, the perceived sense of civic virtue on the other. We need to start with the very first immigration law, and I think you have a, a copy in front of you or, or eventually will. It's not a very, it's not a meaty document necessarily. Um, it dates all the way back to 1790, and I know I'm supposed to be talking about much later uh, period, but this is, this is on the books for a long time, so it's an, it's an important kind of benchmark or baseline for understanding American notions of belonging and not belonging. The first Congress sits down in 1790 to decide what should be the requirements for naturalized citizenship. Who can come, who can become citizens, and how shall they do that? And the key phrase, as you take a look at it, the key phrase in that act, the act of 1790, is free white persons. 
free white person, there are some other requirements written in there, but free white persons, that is the population that we're talking about who are eligible to come in and become citizens. And there's, it's interesting, these documents still exist, you don't have these in front of you, but the, there's an immense debate over this, it goes on and on, and this Congress, they, they ask questions about everything. Can nobles from foreign lands, people who hold title, can aristocrats, can they become citizens? Can Catholics become citizens? Can Jews become citizens? Can people who hold, who are stakeholders in other countries, people who, who own property abroad, can they become citizens? There are all these questions, should, you know, and, and what about a residency requirement? How long should a person be here? 25 years, 10 years, five years, two years? Do, should a person have witnesses to come forward and, and speak on their behalf as to their, their virtue and their standing? I mean, they, they talked about this for a really long time, but the free white persons, the racial, the racial part of this, they never brought up once. It was just, it just kind of flowed out of their mouths, through the pen, into the law, was never questioned, never debated, never a point of anything to pause over at all. Now, why would that be? There are a couple, two dimensions to this, really, of why, why whiteness would be presumed to be such a core principle to American citizenship. One had to do with a set of practical questions from the kind of colonial period and on into the early national period. You know, the word white, or the notion of white and whiteness and white people and kind of white racial identity had been written into colonial statutory law in a million different ways. You know, who could be part of a militia? Who could marry whom? Who could own whom? I mean, there were ways in which white, uh, whiteness was not a new legal principle in 1790, and there was some basis for it. One of the reasons, or some, I mean, legal precedent for it, one, uh, set of reasons are the practical reason, that in the context of kind of settler democracy or a settler society, that is slaveholding on the one hand, but is also uh, settling hostile territory on the other hand, and with kind of fairly constant warring with native populations. The notion of domestic tranquility itself is a kind of racialized one, that whiteness I mean, if, if the population is going to be safe, then the possibility of slave rebellion and the reality of Indian wars are two of the things that, that, that structure the idea of domestic tranquility. And so there's this practical notion of who can be a citizen? Whites, white people. Another, though, has to do with a much more kind of philosophical dimension, that at the time of the revolution, there was this notion, first of all, that that the revolution was radical, and that, that to take monarchic power and turn it sideways so that authority is not running from the crown down to the people, but that is shared horizontally among the people themselves, people are self-governing. That was a frightening experiment to a lot of people and a fragile one, and it seemed to people at the time, it seemed to the founding generation, that it was an experiment that was not going to withstand the participation of just any old group of people, that it was gonna take a very special group of people to pull this off. That democracy or Republican government required a kind of safeguarding. And this racial logic was one of the ways that democracy was safeguarded by that generation. The exclusions, I mean, and it's an irony to us, it's a paradox, it seems almost uh, unbelievable because we've been taught to think that racism and democracy are antithetical 
and that racism is somehow a blot on our democracy. But in fact, go back a couple centuries, racism and, and democracy are the things that really kind of constituted one another. The democracy was constructed and preserved in the minds of that founding generation by the exclusions based on race. That was the thing that was gonna make democracy work. And if you look, I say this is a philosophical dimension of this civic story because if you go back and look at writings that are not necessarily about race overtly, but things like virtue or civic life, you can see that for white Europeans and Euro-Americans in this Enlightenment era, that, that there, there was just a, a presumption that certain virtues were, were the singular possession of the white race. That you couldn't be talking about Africans or Asians or Native Americans if you were talking about certain kinds of public virtue, certain kinds of forbearance, certain kinds of wisdom, uh, all of these, these uh, characteristics that were thought to be requirements for this, the functioning of this new fragile experiment in democracy. They were racialized. White people would have to do this. That's how the word white ends up in our first naturalization law. And it's maybe the most portentous legislative act in American history. Portentous in both senses, portentous in what it portends. I mean, this is the legacy of this law is not just, not just the massive era of European immigration later in the, in the 19th and on into the 20th century, that, that 26 million, right? They, they are the legacy and many of the people in this room, myself included, as their descendants are the legacy of this law of 1790. It was that law that allowed for the massive migrations from Europe. But among the other legacies are things like Chinese exclusion. The Chinese Exclusion Act was made possible by the 1790 Act because Chinese immigrants were ineligible for citizenship. They were here, they were present, as migrants, but they were not citizens. They had no rights that any politician was, was bound to respect or worry about. They weren't a voting bloc. They had no political voice. They were uniquely vulnerable to the politics of exclusion because of the, 19, uh, the 1790 uh, uh, naturalization law. So, and same thing, go, go on into the middle of the 20th century. Um, Japanese internment. This law is still on the books then. And they are uniquely vulnerable to the politics of exclusion and internment during World War II because of their peculiar status uh, and their, their uh, unique kind of outsider status because of the 1790 naturalization law. So the 1790 law is portentous in that sense. It portends a great deal about the kind of history that's gonna come down the pike in this country. It's also portentous in what it tells us about American citizenship and about some of the dominant conceptions of it. It tells us some things that we need to know about the presumptions and the presumed relationship between race on the one hand and citizenship on the other. And that's, uh, that's one of the ways to understand the long history of the debates over immigration that begin in earnest in the 1840s when the first really massive wave of an unanticipated immigrants comes. That's the Irish in response to the famine. It's that first spike that I talked about at the outset, that first, that first million or so people who come ashore in the 1840s. 
The response to them is not just a religious response, although that's important in the case of the Irish. A lot, a lot of native-born Americans were worried about Catholicism and what that might mean. Can Catholics really be good American citizens because supposedly what they're, they're, um, they're beholden to the Pope in some way that, that is politically suspect? But religion wasn't the whole story. One of the things that you start to see in the second half, and you, you saw this and began to talk about it a little bit in those documents that you were looking at, uh, that you were looking at this morning, but you start to see a kind of racialization, if you will, of white people. So that kind of blanket term, white citizens from 1790, starts to fragment a little bit into good whites and bad whites. And you start to see people like the Irish first, but later on in the century, um, Jews, Italians, Greeks, discussed as kind of lesser white races. And they're dis but they're discussed in racial terms. By racial, I mean their differences are not presumed to be cultural or ethnic or just not a matter of language and literature and, uh, and religion, but are, are inherent, inborn, heritable. They're in the blood. So even in the 1840s and 50s and 60s, you start to see the Irish. Now what, what native-born Americans do is they look at the Irish ghetto in Boston or New York or Chicago, and they see a certain kind of impoverishment, they see a certain kind of squalor that are really the results of industrialization, urbanization, poverty, but they attribute it to the Irish themselves. And they d describe it in racial terms and they disparage the Irish as uh, potential American citizens. They disparage the notion because obviously these people are not fit for self-government. These people are not like us. These people are not uh, the stuff of good citizenship. That kind of thinking becomes more and more formalized over the course of the 19th century. So by the time the Immigration Restriction League comes along, and you were looking at one of their documents, they pop up in the 1890s. By then, there's a whole kind of scientific apparatus behind this kind of thinking. It will become what's called the eugenics movement uh, after the, the turn of the century, where the, the ideas of of the biological sciences, to some extent the psychological sciences. You'll notice in your timeline of legislation, some of the federal immigration laws start to take on psychiatric language in the 1890s. Even the notion uh, likely to become a public charge is kind of a racialized notion. I mean, it's, it's subjective, it's a subjective judgment. How can you look at someone and say they're likely to become a public charge? How are you gonna make that decision? Well, in, in the 1890s, that decision was, was basically a racial one. So what you see in this period is uh, even though the labor was needed, even though the numbers were not shut down, even though uh, massive waves of, of immigrants continued to come, the discussion of immigration was the civic discussion, citizenship, not citizenship, are they an acquisition or a threat or whatever the, the language was in that one document you looked at. Are they good for us? Are they bad for us? All of these things were keyed no longer by a blanket notion of whiteness as supreme, as in 1790, but a much more variegated kind of notion of good white races, Anglo-Saxons, bad white races, Hebrews, Med Mediterraneans, Slavs, Celts. This all becomes formalized in 1924, the legislation that really shuts down this immigration once and for all. Now it's important to say that 
restrictive legislation in 1924 probably wouldn't have passed if the economic coalitions around migration hadn't also shifted. There's a depression for one thing, uh, the labor needs um, decrease a little bit. Uh, American business, well there's also, you talked about the Red Scare. American business changes their thinking a little bit about the immigrant population and the immigrant worker. Uh, economic needs change a little bit. And the political coalition, the kind of pro-immigration coalition, shifts, swings around, uh, and is no longer holding the upper hand in American politics. So the, the 24 legislation wouldn't have passed without the economic kind of politics of the moment. But nonetheless, the thing that, that provided the logic of the debate, and the logic of that 1924 law itself was not economics, but was, what, what was that, uh, that civic discussion that was keyed to race. So what you get in, in 1924 is a law that really shuts down, well, first of all, it excludes Asia entirely, totally shuts down on immigration from Asia. But it also cuts down just to a trickle migration from those parts of Europe that were thought to be most problematic, that is South Europe and East Europe. And that was engineered, it was by design. The formula they came up with was uh, quotas that were based on census data, but not census data from the moment, but census data going back. They went back several decades to uh, a period when these problematic races from Europe uh, were not very numerous, and they used that as the benchmark for determining what countries would get what, uh, would, how many slots for immigration. So they purposely engineered a migration policy that not just shut down or closed uh, down on the numbers pretty dramatically, um, but, but shut certain people out almost entirely uh, while still allowing others to enter in, in relatively greater numbers. And it was called a National Origins Act. It was called National because the statistical data was based on national groupings, but it really was a racial act. All of the, the, the logic behind it, the discussion behind it, um, the, the kind of scientific or pseudoscientific thinking behind it, uh, the biological thinking behind it was, was all racial, and that was the reason that the numbers took the shape that they did. Okay. Now, immigrants themselves were not just passive to all of this. They weren't just, you know, just as it is the case that they weren't buffeted along by forces that they didn't understand, but in fact were making strategies throughout their whole period of migration. Decisions about where to go and why to go there. Decisions about family economies, sometimes that involved uh, kind of transatlantic uh, relationships, a transatlantic household where people were providing different things for each other uh, while the family was split apart. Um, strategies about where people would go and when they would return and how they would help each other get from one place to another. Okay, just as it is the case that immigrants were not passive in the face of those economic forces that were, that were sending them overseas, neither were they passive to this kind of hostile greeting that they, that they so often received upon their arrival. And I want to just talk about some of the immigrant strategies for meeting this reality. One is confronting the kind of philosophy of citizenship that is embedded not just in the 1790 law, as I was discussing, the notion of certain people being fit for self-government and certain people not, 
And that also became obviously kind of encoded in discussion of immigration uh, later in the decade, so, or later in the, in the century. So one of the things that you see is immigrants actually rising up and speaking against this. I mean, one of the choices that this poses, if you think in terms of that 1790 law and what it presumes about inclusion and exclusion. If you have the we the people who are part of the democratic, democratic project and then you have all these other people who are excluded. If you're on the outside, you're really faced with two choices. One is you can argue that you belong on the inside of that circle. You, could be, you, you are a rightful member of we the people from which you've been excluded because you're just like the people who are, who are already on the inside. You can make that argument. You say, you're mistaken about me. It's a libel, it's a slander. I'm not who you take me for. Give me a chance and I will show you that I'm just like you. I can be a fit citizen and I will show you that that's true. That's one choice. The other choice is to make the opposite argument, to say, yes, I'm different than you, but my difference will be a benefit to the republic. Let me into that circle, include me among the number of we the people, and I will show you that my difference is actually a gift. You see this? Some of you might recognize this as the Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois debate. That's exactly it. And which, so African-American politics is really structured by exactly the same kind of unforgiving uh, set of presumptions about citizenship and race. But you also see that debate within every immigrant group that I know anything about. So just to take an example, Writers like Mary Anton, some of you might know her, her book, The Promised Land. You'd have to say, this is an assimilationist text. This is a text by a woman, a young uh, Polish-Jewish woman who comes to Boston. She, she makes all the right moves. She becomes American by, any, by, by anybody's standard of what American might mean. She's educated here. She learns beautiful English. She becomes completely assimilated. And then she writes a book about it. And it's a book that, you know, from our kind of late 20th century or post-civil rights era temperament, we look at it and we say, eh, it's, it's assimilationist. Wouldn't it be nice to, to have a book that was more kind of a book of ethnic pride? Because we kind of see assimilationism as a kind of self-loathing. It's like she had to shed the real Mary Ant and she had to hide it away in a closet. She had to get rid of that person. She had to, to kind of cut her ties with her, her real heritage and pretend to, to be this other thing in order to gain acceptance. But at the moment, that was actually one of the most radical moves you could make. Because what was being said about Mary Anton is, you are not like us. You do not belong with, within the circle of we the people. You are a threat to the republic. You're a menace. And so she's, she's writing back with this kind of vengeful virtuosity in English, this kind of vengeful assimilationism and saying, you are wrong about me. And you are wrong about my people. And you are wrong about those who are knocking at the gates to get in, whether they're from Greece or Ireland or Italy or China or anywhere. And then after The Promised Land, she goes on to write a, a, a pro-immigration tract called exactly that, They Who Knock at Your Gates. It's an argument from assimilationism. It's a really powerful, radical argument, but it's from assimilationism. The opposite, Abraham Kahan, another Jewish writer, comes from Russia, is the editor of the Jewish Daily Forward forever, like, I don't know, 50 years or something. He uh, is a, a labor activist. He's a kind of labor Zionist in a way. He writes in a very different way, but writing against the same kinds of uh, unforgiving structures and, and presumptions against the immigrant and against Jews uh, in his case. 
So his stories often have to do with the quintessence. What in, in Yiddish, it's called those uh, pintaliyid. It means the, the quintessence of the Jew. What is that thing within the self that is undeniably, unchangeably, immutably Jewish? And unlike Mary Anton, he's not saying, I'm just like you, and I'll prove it to you. He's saying, no, I'm, I'm irredeemably Jewish and proud of it, and my politics will be based on that, and my good American citizenship will be based on that, and all of my, all of my struggles for justice will be based on that. And that comes through not just in his overt political writings, it comes through in the novels that he wrote. So, that's, so one set of strategies are purely kind of intellectual argumentation. And there's more of that than I think uh, immigra immigrants en masse are given much credit for because there are immigrant newspapers by the hundreds in this period. There are, there are newspapers in 340 languages in the United States in this period. I don't even think I could name 340 languages, right? But that's the kind of level of feverish activity and commentary and debate and discussion. So that's, that's one of, of the responses. A second is challenging, and this, this I want to get away from uh, the Europeans for just a moment and talk about uh, Asian immigrants and uh, their challenges through the courts to that core presumption of, of whiteness as being, as being a necessary uh, prerequisite for citizenship. Because even in the period of exclusion, Chinese immigrants and then after them, uh, people from South Asia, um, people from Japan, people from Hawaii take a series of cases to the courts to challenge that. Well, actually, what they don't, this is important. They don't say whiteness shouldn't be a prerequisite for citizenship. What they say is, I'm white. It's an important distinction. But nonetheless, it's an important set of challenges to those exclusions. So starting in the 1870s, there's a case called Ah Yup. That's the, the gentleman's name. And then stretching all the way through the 1920s, there are two cases that are particularly important and interesting. One is by a Japanese immigrant named Takeo Ozawa, and the other is by an Indian immigrant named Bhagat Thind, T-H-I-N-D. These are in 1922 and 1923. And they, they're good emblems of the protest and the use of the courts and the sincerity for immigrant desire to break through those structures of exclusion and become part of the American polity. They're also uh, maybe the best snapshot we have of, of how powerful the racial thinking is and how insistent uh, the federal government was on excluding certain people. Takeo Ozawa in 1922 comes to court and he says, okay, your naturalization law says I can't be a citizen because I'm not a free white person, but look at me, the skin tone, my color, I'm whiter than some of the white people in this room. I was educated in the United States, I speak English, I have no ties to Japan, I'm white by anybody's measure of what white might mean. And the court rules, well, you may be white according to kind of common sense notions, but you're not white according to scientific notions. You may be white, but you're not Caucasian. Petition denied. The next year, Bhagat Thind from India is actually granted citizenship by a lower court, and the federal government goes to all the trouble to, to take him to court. This is the US versus Bhagat Thind. The US takes him to court to strip him from his, or strip his citizenship. 
He refers back, he, he's learned his lesson. He refers back to the Ozawa case. So he brings in anthropologists who will say, scientifically, he is a member of the Caucasian race. And the court rules, you may be Caucasian, but you're not white. <laughs> okay, these, these cases almost always end up tragically and predictably. I mean, when you read, when you read the court records, you just know you know, when this, when this Syrian immigrant named Dow walks into the room and is, he's described as being roughly the color of a walnut, right, in the court records, you know that his case is probably not going to go so well. But nonetheless, this is a really important dimension of the political life of certain immigrant communities and of the overall story of immigration and, and uh the kind of vicissitudes of inclusion and exclusion and the ways that immigrants really did try to take their fate into their hands and really did try to grab hold of, a, of the system, even those who were most vulnerable to it, even people who didn't have the rights of citizenship and had very few political allies, were willing to go to the courts and, and try to get those changes. So that's the second strategy. A third, and this is often overlooked because we love the story of the immigrant who chose America and wanted to become American and wanted to do nothing more than to shed his or her old world ways, right? A third strategy has to do with old world nationalism. Why is it that there are so many Irish nationalists in the United States? Why is it that Zionism is so powerful in the United States? Why are Polish nationalists more common in the United States than they are in Poland? Okay, old world nationalisms became one of, well, there are a couple of dimensions to this. One is that these periods of tremendous out-migration, whether you're talking about Ireland in the 1840s, Poland in the 1880s, Russia and the Jewish settlements in Russia in the 1890s and after, these are moments of tremendous crisis. Migration is one response. It's an economic crisis. In some cases, it's also a political crisis. Migration, out-migration, is one response to the crisis. Nationalism is often another response to the same crisis. Therefore, migrant populations were uniquely attuned to nationalist arguments. So Boston becomes a seat of Irish nationalism in the 1850s and after. You know, Chicago becomes a seat of Polish nationalism in the 1870s and after. Part of this has to do with, you know, having established themselves here, immigrants now turning back to the old world and giving back and trying to do something for those they left behind. That's part of it. But part of it has to do with this, uh, the politics of, of hierarchy here in the new world. That is, if Poland can again be made into the kind of place we can be proud of, then we will be accepted more powerfully and more favorably than we are here in the United States. I want to work for the, the resurrection of Poland, not because I plan to go back, but because my lot here in Chicago will, will be better 
if, if Poland is restored and treated with dignity, and Poles themselves are then kind of thought of as a dignified people who, who, are, who uh, earn respect. So old world nationalism, again, is something that, that we don't think of so much when we think about immigrant populations, but it's, a, it's an important uh, feature of the political landscape for many immigrant groups, and again, it's an important part of this, this story of inclusion and exclusion and the fights over it. Another strategy, I won't say so much about this, I know that you're gonna get the uh, DVD about the uprising of the 20,000, but let me just quickly mention that labor politics becomes another strategy by which immigrants really fight for rights and fight to, to resist the kind of slanders against them and also the kinds of harsh conditions that they, they find once they're here. It's important though, there is an ethnic dimension to labor politics in this period. I mean, I think there probably is in any period, but especially in this period, because, because of the kind of mechanisms for migration and because of the ways that immigrants helped one another, for one thing, and the immigrant networks were so important to the whole processes of migration. Family networks were often important. That's part of it. But also, employers were really happy to make use of those networks. So the economy in this period, this rapidly industrializing economy, is really characterized by ethnic niches kind of throughout. So you have Polish meat packers. Doesn't mean every, every Pole is a meat packer and every meat packer is a Pole, but it, there's just a preponderance of one given group inhabiting one industry. So you have you know, Polish meat packers in Chicago, you have Finnish miners in Minnesota, you have Slavic miners in the, the coal fields of Pennsylvania, you have Mexican smelters in uh, industry in Texas. Um, so you have these niches of particular ethnic groups uh, or, you know, or Jewish and Italian garment workers, which, uh, who you'll, you'll be seeing in the, the film. You have uh, immigrant groups occupying uh, economic niches in a particular way that then brings a kind of ethnic flair, an ethnic set of meanings and habits and customs and understandings to labor radicalism itself. I mean, one of the peculiarities of this period is that immigrants were feared by labor as, as being too docile and they were feared by business as being too radical. Uh, and the truth is maybe some of both, maybe some of neither. But in any case, when you look at at uh, labor politics in this period, it's hard to extract the ethnic politics from it because workers were so often working uh, together uh, in, in labor politics as an ethnic bloc, uh, and, and that became an, an important, an important uh, kind of texturing uh, feature of labor politics in the period. Two more to mention, one is Electoral politics, you were talking about the Irish earlier. I won't, I won't say too much about this, but it is very important that the Irish, the Irish really captured the American city in the 1850s and after. There were a couple of reasons for this. One was the timing of their migration on both ends of it. They, it their massive migration came right after a period of Catholic emancipation that gave them some real political experience right before they left. Right before they left Ireland was this period of a kind of political foment that really gave them some of the tools that they would need later on politically. Gave them some experience, gave them some understanding, and the system that they were in. It was an Anglo-Saxon legal system. So when they got to the United States, there was much about the political landscape that was familiar to them. The timing on this end of it, they were arriving right at this moment where cities were growing and city governments were being reimagined re 
and, and, and were, were uh, taking on functions that they never had before. So when they voted as a block, also American cities, as they still are, were fairly segregated by both class and by ethnicity. And the political map was based on a ward system where territory was everything. So if the Irish voted as a block, they could capture whole sections of the city and thereby, thereby capture seats on city, uh, in city government and thereby kind of parlay their goods and eventually capture the whole of city government, which they did. This was important for later groups too though, because even if the machine was basically an Irish machine, you know, in a city like Chicago, other ethnic groups found their niche within it and were able to use it. And again, this, this uh, became a really important device for confronting not only the slanders of anti-immigrant sentiment, uh, but also the harsh conditions of, of uh, urban and industrial life in this period. And so uh, in capturing government, they were able to capture uh, the ability to provide each other jobs, uh, you know, Things like police work or teaching, uh, nursing in some cities were, were uh, on the city payrolls. Uh, and they could also use the, the wealth of the, the municipality itself to kind of redistribute and, and get the goods out. You know, it's the famous bringing the, the turkey to the poor family on, on Christmas Day. You know, redistributing wealth at least a little bit in the pre-welfare state era. So electoral politics is another important arena for immigrant activism and for uh, the immigrants' uh, kind of agency and, and important response to the situation that they found. And then finally, I'll just mention, this is kind of vague, but it's important nonetheless. In telling ourselves the story that we do about the good old immigrants and how they became Americans, we tend to downplay their own network of cultural institutions and the ways in which old world cultures persisted for a very long time uh, in a really robust way. So it wasn't just true that there tended to be things called ethnic neighborhoods. A Polish neighborhood might only be 70% Polish, maybe not even that, maybe 40% Polish, but Poles would be the biggest group. You know, the Jewish Lower East Side wasn't entirely Jewish, but these neighborhoods that were marked as ethnic the thing that marked them was particular institutions. It might be an enormous Polish church that marked a particular neighborhood as the Polish neighborhood. It might be immigrant newspapers, other cultural institutions, Yiddish theaters, but immigrants really did grab a hold of their section of the city, whether you're talking about Boston and the Irish, you're talking about Jews and Italians in New York, you're talking about Poles in Chicago, these immigrant groups really did grab a hold of a certain part of the city, sometimes a very small part, but really transformed it. It was not just the case of America making the Poles Americans, it's Poles making Chicago Polish in some really important ways. And that's a story that I think we downplay for this particular period of, of migration, the huge, the huge uh, European migrations uh, between the Civil War and World War I because we like to tell ourselves this other tale. We like to tell ourselves the tale of them becoming Americans, of their assimilation, of their, their fitness for self-government, of their proving themselves worthy, uh, and all of those things. But there's more kind of cultural persistence there than is often noted, and I think you get a taste of that anyway in some of the reading that you did in the Nancy Foner book. 
I will stop there, and um, I'm eager to hear what's on your mind, answer any questions you might have, but also um, to kind of think together about how to get this stuff into the classroom and making it, make it meaningful for your students and for yourselves. So thank you.